Hello everyone, welcome to the International Business Podcast. If you work across time zones, borders and cultures, this is the show for you. I'm Leonardo, founder and host of the show, but let's make it simple and just call me Leo. I'm based in Shanghai and I'm accompanied by two co-hosts, Stefano, based in Paris, and Audrey from San Francisco. Coming up on today's episode. So, you know, if you're an Australian company and you're selling to China, your Chinese clients might not always want to pay you in Australian dollars. Um, ditto if you're, an Australia, if you're a US company selling to the UK. You know, people in the UK might want to pay in pounds, not pay in USD. I mean, I've got a client that I'm working with at the moment that has staff in Australia and also has staff in Malaysia and Vietnam, and they've been great. So they've agreed to basically get all of their team to do some cross-cultural training. And we have gotten all the teams together on a virtual meeting to actually talk through, well, what are some of the challenges? You know, what are the things people that people find difficult or do, that people don't understand or that make people feel frustrated? Despite the fact that Australia and China have a free trade agreement in place, there is now a 300% tariff on Australian premium wine. And that's, you know, that's a big problem uh, because a bottle of wine that uh, used to cost, I don't know, $100 in China now costs $400 in China thanks to the tariffs. Cynthia is an international business strategist, founder of Darren and Associates, and the International Business Accelerator. She's also a keynote speaker, author of Amazon bestseller, Camel, Shakes and Billionaires, and host of the Business Beyond Borders podcast. You can find more information about Cynthia in the show notes. Now, let's go global. Hi, Cynthia. I'm glad to have you on. Welcome to the show. Great to be here, Leo. I have a straightforward question for you. Why would you define yourself as an international professional? Well, a couple of reasons. So I spent the majority of my adult life from age 21 through to age 33 living and working abroad. I'm originally from Sydney, Australia, but I lived and worked in Paris, in London, in Cairo, Egypt, in Abu Dhabi, in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates, uh, in Baghdad, in Iraq, and in little bits and pieces all over the Middle East. So I did that from 1998 to 2010. Uh, then I came back to Australia and I took up a job running at a bilateral chamber of commerce. So again, I was working on international stuff and traveling out internationally. And then in 2013, I started my company, Deren and Associates, which is all about helping businesses to scale internationally. And so uh, these days, while I am not traveling as much as I used to, I'm still spending uh, all day, every day working with clients to help them actually scale what they do out into other markets in the world. So you mentioned scale, helping companies to scale. So to help them scale internationally specifically and get results, there are three big levers to pull. Critical thinking, the ability to make uh, decisions and extraordinary executions. Can you tell us uh, more about these levers? Yeah, look, absolutely. And, and these are related to, I guess, the, the overarching themes of strategy and momentum and cash flow. So, you know, when we are thinking about how do we actually take a company from what it is at home to being something much more expansive in international markets, what do we need? We need 
a strategy that's going to actually take the company from where it is to where it wants to go, so a structured pathway. We need the momentum behind that because it's great to have a plan, but there's no point having the plan if it just sits in a drawer. We actually have to go ahead and make that plan uh, roll out. And then thirdly, we obviously need money. You know, we need money to get the thing up and going, cash flow, and we want money to be created by whatever we're doing. So that's really important. And so those relate to critical thinking, definite decisions, and extraordinary execution like this. So in order to um, create a strategy, we need to think critically, i.e. we need to do the opposite of going through our expansion on autopilot. We need to actually sit down and put in the intellectual work to decide, you know, where are the opportunities for us? Where are the challenges? What market will we go to? What do we need to know about that market and the the clients and customers in that market and so on and so forth? We then need to make some definite decisions about what we're going to do with that information, you know, so having thought in depth and thought critically about what we need to do, we need to then say, all right, well, look, we have the following objectives for the next, say, three years uh, and for the next 12 months and for the next 120 days. What do we actually need to do to take that information and apply it in the market? And then thirdly, we need to execute to a high standard. So we call that extraordinary execution. And it basically means taking the information that we have collected and analysed and um and collated and taking the decisions and then actually taking those two things and executing what we know needs to get done to a very high standard. And so basically when you combine your critical thinking and your definite decisions, you get a strategy. When you uh, combine your definite decisions and your extraordinary execution, that gets you momentum. And then when you combine the uh, extraordinary execution and that critical thinking, that is what generates the money for you. Does that make sense? It does. I love asking to business experts a concise definition of business terms. You mentioned momentum. What do you yes. mean exactly with momentum in one or two sentences? Oh, so what I mean by momentum is, you know, we often set goals for ourselves in business or we have a plan on a piece of paper or, or on 40 pages. Uh, and that plan is great. But as long as the plan is not actually being achieved, we don't have momentum. So by momentum, I mean every 100, well, in, in our in our methodology, we set goals every 120 days. So what I mean is in 100, you set goals for 120 days and then you actually go ahead and you tick them off. And when you come back at the end of the 120 days, you say, oh, great, we've achieved all of those goals that we set for ourselves We've moved this much further down the track. Now let's set, what's our next set of goals for the next 120 days? And so you're continually setting goals, doing the work to achieve them and getting them getting them realized and achieved and then setting new goals and going on and achieving those. So to give you the, the kind of counterfactual on that, I see too many companies that, you know, every new year rolls around and they're like, right, we'll make some New Year's resolutions. And they feel kind of disappointed because, in truth, they're sort of where they were last year. You know, they don't have that momentum and so they're not moving forward. And, and the momentum is a really key part of um, growth and progress in a business and scaling, I mean, scaling domestically or internationally. You can't, you can't scale a business if you don't have that momentum and that, that actual movement and stuff happening inside the company. People from different places don't always understand each other. Why is that and what can be done to improve the situation? 
it's really comes down to um, cultural miscommunication. And one of the, well, there are, I guess, again, you know, I can think of three key reasons. The first is that people often don't realise that people see, other people from different places see the world quite differently. People sort of assume that everybody sees the world the same way that they do. And so when somebody says something or does something, they attribute a certain meaning to that, even though those words or those actions might have a different meaning in another culture. And so, you know, if you're confronted with somebody saying or doing something um, to you or near you that you think is really rude, you're probably going to react negatively to that. In fact, the other person might not mean anything badly by it. That's kind of just how they operate in their world. And so a lot of miscommunication often happens. And what I've said sounds very kind of academic. So let me give you an example of how that works. You'll probably know from, you know, having lived and worked internationally yourself that people have got very different approaches to time. So, you know, I come from an Anglo-Saxon background and we are very what's called monochronic in our approach to time. And that means that we see time as money. We like to have plans. We like everything to be very organized. We like meetings to start at the time that we say they will start and to finish when we say they will start. We like work to get delivered on time. If you come from a culture which is a polychronic culture, which exists in lots of parts of Asia and in Latin America and in the Middle East, you don't see time the same way. So you see time as related to relationships. Sometimes the past and the present and the future are intertwined. And so rather than this rigid concept of time, time is more elastic. And what that means is that people in those cultures are much more comfortable with flexibility around time. So, you know, in Malaysia, for example, if a meeting starts 15 or 20 minutes late, and if you arrive at that meeting 15 or 20 minutes late, for the Malaysian people, it's not a big problem. You know, when I worked in Iraq, sometimes we would wait half an hour or an hour for a meeting to start. And for the people in Iraq, that was not a problem because they were dealing with other things that were important. They were nurturing other relationships and having other conversations. But for Anglo-Saxons who are sitting at meetings and, you know, waiting for 15 minutes or 20 minutes or half an hour, an hour with no explanation, that feels wrong to them and rude. And so they tend to get quite, uh, quite angry about that. And so that is an example of how different perspectives on how the world work really lead to different understandings of what words and actions mean, and that leads to mis miscommunication. So that is one thing. The other two things are people act on their assumptions. So, you know, I was saying you assume that something has a certain meaning. You assume that when you're kept waiting for a meeting to start, it means the other person doesn't respect your time. That might actually not be true, but you act on that assumption, so you then react negatively and your meeting gets off to a kind of a tense start. And the third kind of problem is that people don't have any defined strategies for working cross-culturally. So people are quite frequently not equipped. They just don't have the tools to go into a cross-cultural situation and to unpack what's happening and understand that and to really stand in the other person's shoes and say, let me see this from the other person's point of view. Oh, okay, I see this you know, they don't mean any offence by this. This is just how their culture operates. Um, I understand. Let's get on with our work. And I'm sure there is no straightforward answer to this, but what's your opinion? So let's say you and I come from different cultures. Mm. Should I adapt to your culture and then, let's say, change my natural behaviour? Or should you change, let's say, kind of your attitude, the thinking of my cultural approach? Because at the end of the day, we look maybe at time in two different ways. 
who should do the step forward the other if there's a rule to this i think there's no rule i think you get the best result where you get both parties putting in the work to understand the other side because you know it's like any relationship if you have to kind of compromise on something with your friends who should compromise you get the best you get the best result when everybody makes an effort and when everybody tries to understand the other person and look at, at the end of the day the things that bind us are much larger than the things that separate us i mean we are all human beings we all want to get on with our lives we want to have um work that makes us feel fulfilled we want to raise our children in peace and security and educate them those are the most important things and these other things you know approaches to time and so forth sometimes they feel super super important but they're not as important as the fact that you know we are all human beings and and that is what makes us special so i mean i think and this often doesn't happen but in the ideal situation um you need to have everybody who is dealing with a cross cultural work environment doing some training and doing some work and really understanding what's going on because that gives everybody the the understanding and the opportunity to to take a a less combative a less adversarial a more collaborative approach to to working with colleagues or clients who come from elsewhere i mean i've got a client that i'm working with at the moment that has staff in australia and also has staff in Malaysia and Vietnam and they've been great so they've agreed to basically get all of their team to do some cross cultural training and we have gotten all the teams together on a virtual meeting to actually talk through well what are some of the challenges you know what are the things people that people find difficult or do, that people don't understand or that make people feel frustrated and you can have some great conversations where people get to really understand each other and appreciate the other side's point of view Moving on to payments, Cynthia. There's no international business without global payments. How can companies avoid gambling with margins and protect them with a foreign exchange strategy? Oh, look, this is um this is a really really big topic, but I would say the best way to do it is to work with a company that provides a a foreign exchange solution so that you're not exposed. So wherever you are buying and sell, well there are two ways you can do it. You can either always buy and sell in the same currency so there you don't have any fluctuation, but as business gets more complex, you often can't do that. So you know, if you're an Australian company and you're selling to China, your Chinese clients might not always want to pay you in Australian dollars. Um ditto if you're an Australian if you're a US company selling to the UK, you know, people in the UK might want to pay in pounds, not pay in USD. And so wherever you've got these different currencies, you're going to be exposed to fluctuations in the global currency market. And so the best thing to do if you cannot buy and sell all the time in one currency is to work with a foreign exchange provider who knows the space and get some professional advice and actually develop a, a hedging strategy so that you can protect your margins you know so that you have a specific rate locked in and so that if the market changes your money is not basically left exposed to the whim of the market because that can you know that can wipe out your margin in a very very short space of time This episode is sponsored by International Expansion Explained. Are you looking to expand internationally, but you're not sure where to start? Or you export already, but would like to venture further overseas? 
Reach out to arrange an international clarity session and learn more about growth plans at katherinereed.com. That is K-A-T-H-R-Y-N-R-E-A-D dot com. What's your take on the current business relationship between Australia and China? It's a little, well, from from over here in Australia, it's a little bit tense, (laughs) I would have to say. Um, And I think but I would also say I think you sort of have to, to to separate it out into what is happening politically and what is happening in a business context. So, you know, anybody who reads the news and follows international news will know that Australia and China had a very good relationship for a very long time, but through a combination of factors and disagreements about different topics, that relationship has really um, begun to deteriorate, and then it is that deterioration has accelerated over about the last twelve to eighteen months. And look, that is that is very unfortunate. On the other side of the coin, there are Australian companies that have been doing business with China for a long time. And what I would say is, what I have heard anecdotally and in the market is that for people who have an established business relationship already it has been possible to essentially continue to trade as normal, except if you happen to be in a sector like premium wine, where um, despite the fact that Australia and China have a free trade agreement in place, there is now a 300% tariff on Australian premium wine. And that's, you know, that's a big problem uh, because a bottle of wine that uh, used to cost, I don't know, $100 in China now costs $400 in China, thanks to the tariff. So there are some sectors that have been badly affected. And I know that in uh, that food and wine sector where these huge tariffs have been levied, Australian companies are now casting around and saying, well, it's really not tenable for us to sell to China anymore, even though we'd like to. So we'll have to to look for a market elsewhere. Uh, And there are other sectors where things have kind of continued on in more or less the same way. So I think, you know, the answer really is, it depends. It kind of depends how long you've been in the market, what your relationships are, what sector you're in. You know, if it's if you're a vigneron and you're making wine, you're probably having a horrible time. Uh, if you are Fortescue Metals and you produce iron ore, um, life's never been better. Iron ore prices over the last 12 months have been at historic highs. So, you know, the picture is quite mixed. Taking the manufacturing business global, what are the very first steps? Well, in my opinion, the first thing that you need to do is actually set out your vision for what you want to achieve, because if you don't have that clear vision, it's very hard to know what success looks like uh, and it's hard to know when you've achieved it. So it's a little bit like getting in your car without a destination in mind and just driving around. How do you know when you've arrived there? Uh, And the second thing that I think you need to do once you've got that clear vision set out and some objectives in place is that you need to choose your market. Because while ever you're looking at the world and kind of saying, well, I could go here, I could go there, I could go to the other place, no decisions can really be made. But once you've made that decision about, okay, here's the market that we're going to sell to, then you can actually start to go ahead and formulate and execute a plan to enter that market. So yeah, for me, really clearly articulating your vision and your objectives and then choosing the market. uh, kind of the first three steps that I would encourage people to do. How would you define vision generically? I wouldn't be 
generic about it, uh, I'd be quite prescriptive. So, I mean, when I work with clients on this, I, I really get them to, uh, we, we do work to actually come up with a paragraph which says, you know, it is the year 2026 and so-and-so company is a successful, we describe, you know, what the company is going to be like, what its mission is, who it's going to serve, how many clients it will have, what markets they're going to be in, how much money they will turn over, what the team will look like, where where the company is going to be headquartered and how it's going to give back to the community. So we actually try to set out really clearly what we want that company to look like and what we want it to be doing and achieving and contributing in a defined period of time. I know you have a podcast and recently you've also written a book. Who should read the book and listen to your show? Uh, Look, both of them have really been developed for CEOs, business owners, founders, um, and people working in companies that want to expand internationally. So, you know, the book is really a how-to a how-to guide on the steps that you need to take to successfully scale a business into other international markets. And the podcast is, you know, pretty much the same. The key reason that we created that podcast was that the team, my team and I wanted to generate a, a resource for people wanting to go global in a place where they could come and listen to stories who already of people who'd already achieved that and pick up as much advice and as many tips as possible so that they can avoid making some of the mistakes that people commonly make when they set out on this adventure. And I'll make sure to link both the show and the book in the show notes for those who are interested to uh, dig further into what Cynthia just said. I've got one final question I ask everyone who comes on the show. Tell us about one memorable moment. I'm sure you have many, but you need to pick one. So one memorable moment from your international career, and that could be a successful, a funny, or even a catastrophic episode? Oh, look, I will tell you this one um, because I was thinking about it just a couple of days ago, and this is kind of a story against myself, but also a story about how when you take the time to get inside another person's culture, it can really, really help you out. And the story is that between 2006 and 2010, I worked in Iraq as a consultant to the the British and then the um, US administration, helping them to try and sort out what was going on inside government agencies in Iraq. And very early on, when I was on my second project and I was just working for USAID, I um, had had all my kind of official papers and the, the I guess the basis on which I was allowed to be in the, in the country changed because I moved from one government to the next. And um, there was this letter that I was supposed to print out and carry around with me when I left Iraq and when I came back in. And, you know, being young and stupid and probably not really listening to the instructions and having lots of other stuff going on, I didn't actually print this letter out and take it with me. So I went off and travelled back to London, as I did every eight weeks, to take a break. And um, then I flew back to Jordan And then from Jordan, I flew into Iraq. And when I got to the immigration line at Baghdad Airport, they wouldn't let me in. And um, I said, what what do you mean you won't let me in? They said, well, you don't have the right paperwork. And so in a panic, I called our office in Baghdad and said, guys, what 
like, what is this paperwork that I'm supposed to have? And they said, well, don't you remember we told you you were supposed to print that letter out and carry it around with you? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is a complete disaster. So I went back to the immigration people and said, I'm so sorry, I don't have this letter. And they said, okay, we're going to deport you. We're going to send you back to Oman. And I was horrified because I would have gotten into a huge amount of trouble from my chief of party in Baghdad if I'd got deported for having a letter missing. And so this exchange was going on in Arabic and I begged and pleaded with them and said, look, the letter is in my email account. It's in my Yahoo mail account. Could you just let me go out through immigration? I'll go to the duty free shop because I know they have a computer and could I print it out and I'll bring it back to you? And the guy looked at me kind of gruffly and said, oh, all right then. And so they let me out through immigration, which they really weren't supposed to do. And I ran to the duty-free shop and I begged in Arabic for the guy in the duty-free shop to let me use his computer, access my Yahoo account, find the letter, print it out, (laughs) take it back to immigration, say, here's my letter. And they said, all right, well, we won't deport you. And they walked me around through a back door and kind of like kicked me out into the luggage hall and I was free to meet my security team and um, go back to Baghdad. But, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a very uncomfortable and embarrassing and mildly scary experience. But I was so grateful that I was able to speak Arabic and I was actually able to communicate with the people in immigration and in the duty-free shop and that they were kind enough and receptive enough to, you know, a white girl who spoke Arabic, that they let me use their computer, print out my paperwork and avoid getting deported back to Oman. So the lesson here is that Yahoo and letters are still are important, uh, still relevant. Yeah, <laughs> but probably more importantly, um, if you're working in another culture, take the time to learn about it. If you can manage to master the language, it's a lot of work, but it's just, it's going to do incredible things for you and open doors for you that would otherwise remain shut and you know for sure as for sure if I hadn't been able to speak Arabic I would have got deported back to Oman and my chief of party would have been really angry and I might have even lost my job but because you know I had made that effort to learn Arabic and I could talk to people and say please help me out they were really sympathetic to that and they actually kind of let me bend the rules a little bit and therefore avoid deportation. To wrap this episode after listening to it Cynthia who should connect with you? And please tell us a bit more about your current role. Who should connect with me is anybody who owns a business, uh, wants to scale that business internationally and wants to do it right the first time around and wants some help with getting it right. Uh, So my current role is uh, that I'm the managing director of Deren & Associates. That's my company. We help businesses uh, turning over more than a million dollars to scale internationally. We do it in a couple of ways. We have an advisory component. We do one-on-one coaching and consulting with companies. And we also run a program called the International Business Accelerator, where we work with small groups of companies in a, uh, a community environment to help those companies scale internationally, to share expertise, and to let founders and CEOs support each other. Cynthia, I want to thank you for your insights. Thank you for joining us on the International Business Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Leo. You can find the podcast on all the major platforms. Make sure to subscribe. Do not miss the weekly episodes. And are you an international professional? Connect with us on LinkedIn to come on the show. For now, cheers.